You are now tuned in to Saved and Woke. Yes, I am. What up, everybody? It's your boy, MSW. That's Mr. Saved and Woke, also known as Juan Enrique Tusei, here with another episode of the Saved and Woke podcast. About a month ago, I had the opportunity to catch a screening of a documentary called Chicago at a Crossroads. And it's basically about the history of housing in Chicago and how that has affected the course of history in Chicago today, especially and particularly regarding its effects on young men of color who find themselves in poverty. A friend of mine, Keith Woodley, is actually from the south side of Chicago and was an employee at one of the nonprofit organizations featured in the documentary. And I was able to have a great conversation with him about the documentary, about one of the gentlemen, or about his work at his organization. He explains it all. And we, of course, we talk about this documentary's implications on our broader societal context. So without further ado, enjoy. All right, everybody. I'm here with my man, Keith Woodley. Um, Keith is a friend of mine. So Monique has uh, a bunch of friends, a, a, t- a tight group of ladies that she got cool with when we were in undergrad at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, one of them goes by the name of Chasley. I don't know what her maiden name is, but now it don't matter no more because her name is Woodley. And that's because of this man right here, uh, Keith. Keith, so... I'm here because, like Keith is here because he was on, he was featured in a documentary, which I'll let him name and explain shortly. Um, and it was, it was about uh, the work. It was, well, it was about, it was about the history of Chicago because he, Keith is originally from, from Chicago. And you know what, instead of me trying to explain it, I'm just going to let my man <clears throat> Keith just give, if you could just give us a brief explanation of the name of the documentary. I'm trying to pull up the information right now as we're talking. So. Oh, that's, it's fine. Like it, really, I mean, what's most important is just like what I give a, a quick summary of what it was about and why and how you got to be included, included in it. And actually, yeah. you know what? I can probably look it up in our text. Here. Yeah, I got it. Cool. So go ahead. So uh, give us uh, a rundown of the documentary. So uh, first one, I'd like to thank you for having me on, man. Appreciate it. This is a uh, big time, man. I- I'm uh, really pumped about what you're doing and uh, the direction that you're going. And there is a, a connection between the gospel and uh, social justice. It's clear. You cannot separate uh, the two. Uh, they go hand in hand. Uh, God was all about it. Jesus was all about it. And so uh, this is big time, man. So I'm really proud about what you're doing, man. And I'm looking forward to this conversation. The name of the documentary that uh, <laughs> I was uh, blessed to be a part of was called uh, Chicago at the Crossroad. And 
Uh, it really was a documentary about uh, Chicago and uh, dating back to the history of when they got into the housing projects and gentrification and how did they begin to um, place people in different projects in, uh, around the city. Uh, and then it uh, further moved on throughout the years and how uh, violence and drug abuse and all different types of abuse began to ail these communities and how they had lack of just educational opportunities, lack of resources, but definitely the communities that were over-policed. And the result of that, uh, you dealt with a lot of gang violence, you dealt with a lot of death, you dealt with a lot of early unwanted pregnancies, you dealt with a lot of single parent homes and so forth and so on. And so one of the things that, that I'm really passionate about is actually being a part of the solution. And so knowing that uh, I started my, um, really my passion back in 2010, uh, where I went into one of these uh, communities. I'm from Chicago, but uh, I left for a minute, did schooling and things like that. And I was working in Missouri for a while and I came back and in 2010, I went into one of the most talked about well-known housing projects, not just in Chicago, but just in the US, the Cabrini Green Housing Project. And uh, I started working there if, as a mentor, simply as a mentor. My goal was to pour into the next generation. I want to work with young men and young women uh, and pour into them everything that I, uh, all the resources and knowledge that I had and what I didn't have, I wanted to expose them to as much as possible. Just a little bit about my background. I grew up single parent home. Mom raised us, uh, six of us, uh, well actually seven. She took in my cousin at a very young age, uh, seven of us. And father, uh, they got a divorce when I was around seven or eight, uh, dealing with, uh, he was dealing with uh, drug and alcohol abuse. And so just that whole dynamics in my mind, I remember just going in and out of rehab centers, visiting him and, you know, he's doing well. And then he's come back and relapsing. And it got to the point where it was just so overwhelming for my mom when she just had to separate and say, just for her peace of mind, um, you know, she had to just kind of separate from him. And so uh, she raised us alone for that time. And so uh, that was a void that was left in my life. And uh, one of the things that as I began to grow up, I realized that the people who helped me uh, were mentors in my life and they paid huge dividends in shaping the, the man that I am today. And so as I was growing up and going through that, I realized that the impact that they had on my life. And I said, you know what? I, re I, really, I, I, I really feel passionate about doing the same thing, kind of like paying it forward, giving back to those who the same way that it was given to me. And so that's really where uh, my passion came from where I started from wanting to give to the next generation because it was simply done for me and I wanted to do it. I didn't know anything about like, you know, parachurch ministry or doing this full time or anything like that. I was just like, you know what? I just want to be a mentor. I want to help our young guys. And I don't know how Lord, but you know, I feel like this is a passion that you've given me. Uh, and so, yeah, let's do it. Wow. That's what's up. So yeah, I didn't know that one piece. I didn't know about your experience growing up with a parent who was, dealing with uh substance use um that's pretty powerful could you go into some to some detail about how the housing projects were organized uh specifically for for black people and like why they were organized in the way that they were organized and the reason i want you to do that is because i feel like the prevailing narrative around housing projects especially those um, with uh, people of color is that, oh, wherever black people or people of color are, 
there is violence and crime because they have, they're at like a cultural deficit. There's something wrong with black people. They don't know how to manage themselves. Basically pretty much they don't know how to act right. And, and govern themselves. But, and, and that's why the projects are like the way, are, are, are the way they are, are in the state that they're in and experience the things that they experience. But could you go into like some more background of like the actual history? Yeah, so um, really first, uh, I would like to say, start with the word ghetto, right? So that didn't originate from uh, black people. That actually from, uh, originated from Jewish people. And uh, they were put in ghettos when they were uh, going up and they put them into pretty much, they took, you know, a, a large group of people, a large number of people, and they put them into really small, tiny spaces, right? And they put them into really tall, uh, really small and, and tiny living spaces at that. And so uh, they had apartment buildings. And um, let's just say one apartment building, you have one room, one bedroom, or even no bedroom, and you may have 10 people living in there. And so instead of building out, they decided to build up, right? And so they stacked them one on top of the other. And they cut as many people in this one short span, like a mile or two mile radius, and they piled hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, maybe even thousands of people into this one small space. Um, anybody living in that type of environment will uh, deal with a lot of different anxieties and a lot of different traumas. I mean, <laughs> you need your space. I mean, just imagine somebody, all of you, you're living in a five bedroom home and you're like, you know what? Like, let me go to my room and let me separate and me close the door because you need your space. Just imagine not having a bedroom. Right? Just imagine living in, in a, in a, in a one-room uh, apartment, and it's 10 people, and y'all spread it everywhere, right? So that originated there, right, when we're talking about the Jewish people, and that kind of transitioned into Black people, and they began to, as Chicago, actually kind of led the charge in building housing projects. And one of the main things was that how can we, uh, because they were dealing with the huge migration, from, and what I mean by that is that uh, a lot of uh, the people from the South began to migrate North once slavery was abolished and they were looking for opportunities for jobs and for housing and for education. And so they began to spread to a lot of places North uh, and they began to lay this out from Mississippi and from um, uh, you got Georgia and uh, just things of that nature, right? South Carolina, they began to lead us out, migrated to the north, to Chicago, Detroit, and they went northeast to New York and Philly, and they went uh, even to the west coast to, uh, to California, and that's when they hit up like Compton and Watts, and they began to hit up all these different urban areas. Well, they became urban areas, and so Chicago is one of the main ones that had a flood coming from the south, right, coming there, and they were like, what can we do with all these black people that's coming here? Right? How can we house them? And so uh, they were there looking for jobs and they were only able to get minimum wage jobs. And so uh, they created a section eight housing where they didn't necessarily have to pay a lot of money to, to take care of that housing. Uh, but in order for them to uh, accommodate uh, the black people in the community, instead of building out, they built, they, uh, built their buildings up the same way they did in the Jewish community. And so they built these apartment buildings, one on top of the other, and they stacked hundreds and hundreds, thousands and thousands of black people into a one small space, right? And they either had one, either no bedroom, one bedroom or two bedroom homes. And so there's a lot of different qualifications for that uh, in order to live there. Uh, one of the things that they really was pushing because it was uh, definitely a sign of systematic racism is that if you, they could not have a two parent household. If a woman was to live there, she, if she was married or she had a, a boyfriend, he could not live there with her, even if he was a father of her child. And so in order for them to be able to get the voucher to live there, they had to um, 
pretty much break up the home. The man had to be out of the home and the woman had to be there by herself with the children. So you can't imagine if you have a woman that's there and she has like maybe two or three or four kids. And let's just say the more kids you have, uh, not let's just say, but this one was the more kids you had, the more money you will receive. And so if you had two, three, four, you know, kids, you would get, you know, say a certain amount of money. And then on top of that, you had a situation where if she's at home by herself and she has to work, she has to make some type of money. She has to have, you know, bring in some type of ends meet. The, the man is not allowed to be there. And so she's out working. Then who's at home raising the children? That's where they're left to being out in the streets, right? And the community is out raising them. And so when you have a situation that's like that, where uh, you have young people that's trying to raise other young people and they're trying to do what they can. And you have young mothers trying to do what she can and working hard and trying to take care of the kids and you don't have a father around, you don't have a male figure around. You are creating an environment that's ripe for violence. You create an environment that's ripe for substance abuse. You create an environment that's ripe for early teen pregnancies. You create an environment that's ripe for a lot of different traumas to go on in there, right? Uh, because, you know, when you, you in those type of situations and you pile on top of one another and you're around a large group of people all the time, that can get very frustrating. And people um, turn to a lot of different vices in order to release their frustration, right? Drug abuse, they go to sex, or they go to alcohol abuse and, you know, so forth and so on. And so that's what you begin to see in the housing projects in Chicago, particularly in Cabrini Green. And that's where they begin to like, just piled these people in there. And it got to the point where the police just didn't even bother uh, responding to calls, to 911 calls. When the violence was just so hectic, they didn't even want to go there. If they had to go there, they had to get a tactical unit because how they set it up, it was just so many different uh, barriers around it and so many different escape pods and, and areas that were not uh, secure that it was just it was just too crazy for the police. And it was they were even scared to go there a lot of the times to police that area. And so what do you have? You have uh, gang members policing the area. And so um, anyway, that's just a little bit about how Cabrini Green, Green particularly became to be. Uh, there are a lot of different other housing projects as well throughout the city of Chicago that took on the same format like they did in Cabrini Green. But the main goal was to get as many uh, African-Americans into a tight space as possible and put them in there. Instead of building out, they decided to build up. Wow, man. You just cover a lot. And I was, right, I was looking down because I was writing notes. <laughs> Because uh, there's there's some stuff I wanted to to highlight about um, just very various pieces of that really great summer you gave. Uh, so you started off saying just you, uh, explaining the term ghetto and that mm -hmm. that's not a term that black people came up with. It's not even a term that Americans came up with to describe where black people live. And it originated, you know, like you said, in 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 Europe where they would where they where they segregated Jewish people to live. And I don't have a lot to say about that term uh, ghetto, but I do want to just emphasize that putting putting Jewish people in ghettos, definitely in Germany, I'm not, I'm not sure of the, his, of the history of ghettos in other countries, but I know putting people, uh, organizing them in ghettos was one of the precursors, if not the final precursor before the Holocaust. So it was like, and I, that, that was not by happenstance because just like with Jewish people is the same thing that happened with black people. First, you got to, you have to separate black people from the general populace mm -hmm. and then you create all these negative stereotypes about them um, and, fl and flood the media with it mm -hmm. so that 
the so that society in general shares the people in power's negative view or or the the negative view that they want you to have and so that they can pretty much either do what they want to do with your community or not do anything that they don't want to do uh, with with your community and it's like i don't i don't think you know i mean unfortunately we're li- we're living in a day and age where some people you know look up to the Nazis, but I, I don't feel like any sensible person, you know, I don't feel like any sensible uh, American, um, and definitely not a believer, is trying to emulate the, uh, the Nazi party, all right? And so, it, and, but when we're organizing people, in, when we're organizing people of color uh, into, into neighborhoods just because we don't want to live with them, that, that's like where we're, you, you're already on that same track. Uh, next thing you mentioned was that how all these black people were coming from, from the South, and one thing I always want to highlight is just that, you know, the reason people like, yes, there was opportunity in the North in a lot of Northern places in, in, in out West, like in California, like that's how my, that's how my mom, my mom's family, they migrated to, to LA from way across Georgia. But another reason, and I'm not sure if this is what happened with the, the, the boom in Chicago but historically, a lot of black migration was the result of white supremacist terrorism in the South. Uh, and it's and like you said, because you, you didn't mention like during during like the periods of, of of reconstruction, like whenever there's some whenever there's shifting going on in the South where when black people are starting to either it, receiving or taking some of the rights that you know are supposed to be given to all american citizens then there's usually this response a violent response um from 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 white people that that often sends a large large number of uh, black people to other areas and i say that because i feel like a lot of times i i've i've encountered like people before who, who try to act like racism is only in the south or that their existence, or that their existence in northern, more northern areas, is completely like detached from the reality of racism. And I was like, because I'm like, look, first off, the only reason that there's this huge black population up here anyway is because of racism. The only reason, and now that I'll get to later, or in this next point, the only reason that all of y'all just so happen to to live in the same space in these cities, once y'all migrate, is because of racism. Um, and to, to that point, it was like, I, always, I don't know, I, I just always assumed, because before I, I learned about, you know, the, how projects were organized and created, I, I just thought that these buildings were already there and that they were cheap. And that was just the only place available for, for migrants to stay. But it was like, no, these people came looking for, looking for places to live and instead of allowing people to live uh, and, and, and just allowing the, the neighborhoods that already existed to, to mix, um, they were just like, nah, we are going to create a space for you all. And it was for the explicit purpose of keeping white neighborhoods white. And I don't, I, I don't know if I'm mixing these two documentaries, but I feel like they did mention in uh, Chicago at a crossroads, the, like the first major suburb in America was uh, Levittown. 
I'm not sure if they if they mentioned that. Um, I'm not sure if they mentioned it there either. It, I, they might have mentioned it there, but going to it. But you know, there's so many documentaries that I like looked at, and they were talking about just the housing things, and so uh, and and how segregation happened, and how a suburbs happened. Uh, I can't can't really recall. Okay, well, uh, I will I will include when I find the, when I remember the name and find a find a link to this documentary, I'll, I'll include it in the in the show notes. But the, j- just look up documentaries on on Levittown. And I will also include how to spell that in the notes as well, because I can't remember right now. But Levittown was the first suburb, and they actively kept black people out of it. I believe it, it was in Illinois. I'm not sure if it was in Chicago, but it was in. I'm pretty sure it was in Illinois. And they they actively kept black people out of it. Like when the FHA when FHA loans were first created, they actively kept only 98% of those loans went to white to white people, and only two percent of only two percent of those loans were given were given to black people. And even uh, soldiers, veterans coming in, they, they got their GI bills and the GI bills was, was for the purpose, uh, the, the combination of the GI bill and those FHA loans was for the creation of the middle class. Like there was no real, there was really no middle class before, before the FHA uh, loans were, were created because before that point, like, like right now, I'll just, I'll just contrast it with now. To get a house now, you some people they'll they'll save up maybe 10 to 20 percent of a down payment and sometimes like if you have like first-time home buyer programs you might not have to have a down payment at all that's what my, me and my wife did but before fha and before before we actually had a middle class you had you had to pay 50 percent of the entire cost of your house and you had and then what was left over had to be paid off within five to ten years maybe just five all right. And so obviously only people who are very, very well off could afford their own homes. Um, but after FHA and the GI Bill and together, that was the purpose was to create this middle class uh, of people who could afford the products that all these major corporations um, were, were, were producing. And all that is to say is, yes, it's great. I'm glad that the middle class exists, but black people were exclusively were excluded from, from those communities and put in ghettos like, like in the exact process that Keith was laying out. And my last point from what Keith shared before I get into more questions is that the, the incentivization of single parent households, because I'm pretty sure I don't have to explain the stereotype of uh, black fathers that is prevalent in America. Like, oh, black people don't, Black people don't uh, take care of their kids. Black men particularly do not have any interest. They just want to have sex, use their women, beat on them and leave. And even though there's, I mean, there are studies now that show that like black fathers are equally and slightly more involved in their kids' lives than white parents, than than white fathers. Um, But this negative and toxic stereotype still, still persists and, and, it just, it doesn't make any sense. I think it's like a self, self-fulfilling prophecy. I, I feel like because people believe, like, oh, black people don't care about their kids. And so if your father was in the home, oh, obviously you, you, don't, you don't need this help. Um, so it like, it incentivized black men who, who did care about their families. Because I think they, t- they kind of talked about like people, like men who were involved in their kids' lives having to hide and act like they didn't live there. And mm-hmm. so on paper, yes, this is, this is a single parent household, but that doesn't mean, that doesn't necessarily mean that these children only have one parent. 
um, in their lives. But yeah, some things I wanted to highlight. So um, Keith, can you share more about the organization that you worked with in Chicago and maybe get into a little of bit of your work specifically with the young man that was focused on for the majority of the, of the documentary? Yeah, I can get right to it. So <clears throat> after going through uh, a number of different organizations within Chicago, I landed on one as a um, director of programs. And I worked for an organization called uh, the Firehouse Community Arts Center. Uh, the main focus, like most of these uh, community organizations, was to uh, fill the gaps where the community uh, was lacking in education and in opportunity and in uh, the arts particularly, because we had a, a situation within the Chicago public uh, school system where they took the arts away, the funding for the arts. And so, you know, you and I, we growing up in school, we had art class. Uh, and that was a, a great way to, you know, uh, help to, you know, relax our mind and, you know, get our mind just off of education. And, you know, we were in a relaxing environment and, and it can kind of help to percolate some other thoughts and artists are created out of that. It's, there's a number of different artists who, you know, came from the seat of, from uh, Chicago Public School System, simply from doing art in school. And so literally uh, they hit the funds and when they, the funds hit, one of the first things to go was the arts, whether that was literally uh, music, art, or either, you know, physical drawing art, all those things were gone. So anyway, this, we wanted, I worked on an organization where we wanted to kind of fill the gaps where that was left off, right? So the Firehouse Community Arts Center was filling those gaps. Now, um, when this documentary was being created, uh, the, the Chicago Police Department came up with the list of about 100 young men between the ages of 16 to 24 who were high risk. Now, this is a little bit different from at-risk youth. There's a lot of youth that are at-risk. Uh, however, there's, a, there's another level to it, and that's high-risk. And so they came up with a list of about 100 guys and say these guys are high-risk. They have, you know, two strikes, like one or two strikes from um, just different things, either the possession of a firearm, intent to sell, you know, caught with drugs on them or uh, just different things they have a rap sheet on them right and if something else happens if they get caught with something else then either one or two things are going to go down either they're going to end up in jail right for the rest of their life or they're going to end up dead right and so we have them we have their name and we're like they're coming to organizations and they're saying hey we need to do something with these groups with, with this group of young men right it's the top 100 right uh, particularly all black and brown, right, young men, uh, between the ages of 16 and 24. And so they came to our organization, knocked on the door, and, and, and you know, we had a good relationship with the uh, police department in our city. And, and, and let me just say this, uh, particularly uh, when we're talking about uh, the black community, we're talking about two different sides of the city of Chicago, the west side and the south side. That's predominantly where you would have the black communities. That's where they would be, south side of Chicago and the west side of Chicago. I'm, I grew up on the south side of Chicago, and I did a lot of work there, but this particular organization is on the west side, and uh, I connect with them on the west side as well, and so they came to our door, knocked on it, and said, hey, would you all be willing to take 30 of these guys uh, to uh, mentor them, to get them on the right path, because they're on this high risk, and we need to try to do something to aid them. We partnered with another organization called CRED, C-R-E-D, and it was led by Arnie Duncan, 
And the, the goal of CRED was to do exactly what we were already doing. Pretty much take this list of guys, mentor them, educate them, uh, give them life skills, and pretty much prepare them for, uh, for life after year with us, where they can leave us educated, not just getting a, uh, a GED, but actually getting a diploma. They have a skill that they can uh, practically take to start to work. And uh, if they don't, then they have the education, they have other life skills where they can go get a job and they, begin, they can begin uh, to become a productive citizen in society. So we took 30 of these guys. And there's one particular young man in the documentary uh, I, I worked with. Um, he came from, it's, it's kind of funny because he just actually got out of jail. And um, one of the things on his parole that he had to do was he had to connect with the organization uh, to get on the right path and get his life together. Well, we had a good relationship with the judges that worked with uh, the juvenile justice department and even, you know, some work with the adults. And so uh, the judge gave us a call and was like, hey, we got this young man and I want him to uh, come to your program. I want him to be a part of your program. He's, you know, being in and out of jail and, you know, he's on his last strike. And if he doesn't get, you know, saying with you guys, and I, I fear that he's either going to lose his life, or, you know, one way or the other either through death or being in jail for the rest of his life, right? His name is Edwin. That's the young man's name. And so uh, Edwin came to our doorsteps just like that. His pro officer came in. He was chained up, like, you know what I'm saying, took, the, took the, the handcuffs off of him, you know, dropped him off right at our door. We signed off, and we said, yeah, let's take him. We're going to get him. And so uh, we grabbed him, and we took him in. And my, and my mindset has been like this, is that I believe more so than anything else that you can make an impact in the life of a youth and you could change the trajectory of their life. It was done for me, right? If I had continued to go the path that I went growing up, I could have been in the same situation like him. I grew up south side of Chicago, gang infested, drug infested area. Mom is working hard as she can, but she's not there. We're out in the streets. We're you know, pretty much raising ourselves. You know, you got the gangs that's trying to recruit you, things like that. And if I did not have older people in my life to steer me another way, then my life could have turned, could have been a lot like his. And so for me, I never take for granted the grace that God has bestowed upon my life. And I've always said that if it was not for the grace of God, then I can be exactly where this young man is. I could be in his place, right? And so I don't come from it with this uppity attitude that I feel like I'm better than them, that I feel like I have it all together. It's like, no, nah, man, we in this together. I'm here to help you. It was done for me, so I'm going to do it for you. And that's been my mindset. And so coming at them in that way gained a level of respect because I am coming at them not from a place of, you know, higher up and looking down to them, but I'm like, oh, no, we're in this together, and I'm going to build you up, and I'm going to bring you up as I'm getting, as I'm going up. And so that was able to, that allowed me to build trust right away with them. Plus, I'm a young black man. Uh, I understand where they're coming from. I speak their language. Uh, I know what's going on. I have a heartbeat to the community. I have, you know, sending ear to the streets. I, I know different things. I, I mean, I've been in, I've been around it. And so they're like, okay, he knows what's up, right? And he's trying to do something different. And so when I'm speaking to them, uh, I'm able to gain that respect because I'm looking at them as equals and not someone that, that's looking down on them. A lot of the times in life, they felt like, you know, I had a lot of people who looked down on them. And, you know, our organization wasn't an organization that they've been a part of. A lot of them have been in a situation where they had to raise themselves. 
uh, particularly in education. We had young guys who dropped out of school, not just high school, but dropped out of elementary school because it was just so dangerous and vital for them to even go to, to school in the neighborhood where people were shooting and killing, like literally in their classrooms where they had to like fight every day because they got another gang that's there in the classroom with them. So we got to the point where it was so dangerous where they had to drop out of elementary school. So we had guys who didn't even have an eighth grade education. Right. And they didn't even go to high school. You had guys who they were able to get, you know, what I'm saying graduate, you know, eighth grade. And then they don't even attend high school because the high school is in their quote unquote ops community. Right. And that's just your opposition. Right. It was in the ops community. And so they know if they're like walking to school or taking a bus to school, that they're literally crossing over into enemy lines. Just imagine uh, trench warfare and you are crossing over the trenches to go attack your enemy. Right. That's how it is. That literally, it was like a war, war zone. That's why they came up with the, the uh, term Chirac, where, and we don't, people from Chicago really don't take a liking to that. Uh, it's people, you know, from the outside who came up with that name, and we really don't take a liking to that, but literally, it's like a war zone. And so you had another young man who didn't want to even cross, didn't want to, I mean, as you can imagine, not want to put themselves in harm's danger, uh, in harm's way, where they're crossing over into enemy territory where they could lose their life. So what do you do? You got to drop out of school. It's, it's nothing that we do because this is the only community school that I can go to. And so I, I'd rather live than try to like fight for my education and try to go there. So I got to just, you know, I got to do what I have to do, right? So you had a lot of young men who were in these type of situations, right? Uh, you had other situations where they were there and they, because they were able to actually be in the school and they're fighting so much and they get in the gang violence got so, so intense. They got kicked out of that school because they really don't know how to, uh, handle their life and their, their traumatic situation. And one of the things that these young men deal with is not just one traumatic situation, but it's one after the other, after the other, after the other. So you're talking about trauma on top of trauma on top of trauma. One situation happens and I'm trying to get my mind together and I'm sitting right here and we had, you know, a, a, a guys walk up to us and they shoot us and my best friend got shot right next to me and he's dead. And I literally, you know what I'm saying, got another friend who got shot in his leg and they were shooting at us and that could have been me. And that happens and I'm going to the funeral and then the next week I'm getting a shot at again, right? It's like, if, if it's not one thing, then it's another. So we're not talking about just like one level of trauma. We're talking about levels and levels and levels of trauma that these young men are dealing with. So what do they do in order to cope with the trauma? A lot of the times people who deal with traumatic situations, they go to different vices, whether it's alcohol or whether it's drugs. And that's why you got guys who smoke weed a lot because they try to medicate themselves, numb themselves down from the traumatic situation that they deal with. So what do they do? They smoke weed, right? To calm them down. They pop a pill to calm them down. Well, if you're doing that, you're not gonna always be in your right mind. You're not gonna always get that same high. Uh, weed is a gateway drug. It's not going to always give you that same uh, sense of peace and calmness that you need. It, will, it won't calm your mind down uh, when you're dealing with reliving the traumatic situations that's going on in your mind, replaying uh, time after time. Every time you close your eyes, you're seeing your friend, you know what I'm saying, laying right next to you, bleeding out because you got shot to death, right? These are the type of situations that they're dealing with. And they're dealing with these trauma things. And we have to, so we have to be able to work with these young men on a level where we're coming to them, understanding that and we have to help them slowly but surely unpack it. So in order to do that, we also had a uh, psychiatrist on deck. And so literally they would sit down with a uh, psychologist and, and they would talk through these traumatic issues as well, right? And they would do it either in a one-on-one -on -one setting or we would also do it where we would do peace circles. If you ever heard the term uh, a peace circle, and I was one, I was trained, and I mean, I've been trained in order to lead a, 
a peace circle. And so like a restorative justice type it's like thing. a restorative justice circle. Yes, you sit in the circle and you and you have a, a simple piece that you can either, you know, declare that, you know, this is a safe space and uh, stories can be shared here, but information uh, that's shared here cannot go out. It's okay to share the story, but don't share information. And we allow a, a, a place where young men can unpack uh, loads and loads and loads of things that they've been holding on their entire life. And it's structured. You can't talk if you don't have this 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 piece in your hand is it, you know structured in that way, and we go around the circle, and everyone gets a chance to share, uh, talk about how their feelings. You know, that's one of the things in the black community that we don't get to talk about. You don't talk about feelings, particularly with young men. You don't talk about how you feel. You don't talk about when you're sad and when you're angry. You just uh, deal with it and move on, right? You don't talk it out, right? So these are therapeutic things that we had in place that these young men had to go through, and we had we saw so many breakthroughs with this. And so Edwin was one of the young men who was a part of the program and literally we was educating him, right? Math, science, all of the STEM. We have tutors come in, they would sit down all uh, through uh, virtual learning and they would work with them and, and work with them out. Some of them had a, you know what I'm saying, fifth grade reading level, sixth grade reading level, eighth grade reading level, right? And, we, and they're, you know, 22, 23, 24 years old. And, and so, uh, we were teaching them these things, going through the education, and we teach them life skills. We were able to get them a job where they were getting paid. First time ever. I remember this, I'm gonna tell the story, it was crazy. <laughs> the first time that these guys uh, got a paycheck, a real paycheck, they were so upset. They came at us, like they were so angry. And we like, this is payday, like y'all should be happy, what is going on? And they like, wait a minute. Like, we calculated our money. We're getting paid $16 an hour. We worked 40 hours a week. We should have this much. And we like, yeah, that's what happens. But you also have to understand that Uncle Sam gets his piece. It's what do you get after taxes? And they was like, what? Like, taxes? We don't know about no taxes. I want my money. What my money? I want all my money right now. Because in their mind, you have to understand how they were, how they were used to getting their money. How they were, they used yeah. to selling drugs, they used to, to hustling. And so and I know that this bag right here, this dime bag right here is going to be $25. And if I sell this to you, I'm getting $25. And that's what I expect to get. If I come to you and I'm getting short, then we have an issue, right? And so that's their mind. They, they're not used to taxes at all. So literally the first day we have to sit down and we have to actually have a class with them and explaining to them the concept of paying your taxes and dues you have to pay to the state. Right. It took a lot of guys, you know, a couple of weeks to get used to getting their taxes taken out because they like, wait a minute. Right. In my mind, I got this money already spent. I got to pay this. I got to pay this. I got to pay this. And I was expecting this amount. Now you put me in a short. Now I got to figure out how to deal with this and that. And, you know, so anyway, man, it's just, you know, we were really giving these guys life skills uh, and walking life on life with them. One thing that's very, very key when you talk about the absence of a father there, when you have a father that's in a home, it's so many things that he provides, just the, the, particularly for a young man, right? And definitely for a young man, but I'm just I'm focusing on a young man right now because that was our focus. You're talking about the security, the, the affirmation, you know, the reassurance, like particularly with, with uh, African-American males, being affirmed by another man in a positive way without wanting something from them is so big. It's so big, Right. Right, when you're able to affirm somebody and not want anything from them. And so these young men weren't dealing with situations where they were ever celebrated or ever affirmed. Their entire life, 
they always looked at it from the, the, the outside systematic racism of you're never going to be anything, you're never going to do something, you're trash, your life is trash. And then when they were going to schools, like, what's wrong with you? They have people coming down on like, when were they ever, they coming in and they got, you know what I'm saying, their mom who's probably stressed out and doing a lot of stuff. And maybe the mom is not there and the grandmother's there and they don't know how to control them and they're coming down on them. When were they ever affirmed and celebrated? Uh, in, in, in an environment. And so we were very big on trying to affirm them and having another older man who's not too much older, but, you know, say old enough that looks like them, affirming them and not wanting anything in return, not asking them for anything, but just building up the man, the young man who they are was so key in what we were doing as well. And so uh, once we were able to walk life with them and, and walk them through steps, sometimes there were ups, and then sometimes there were downs, right? We'll take two steps up and then, you know, may take three steps back because they're dealing with issues. They have to unpack stuff. They were walking with us. They could no longer smoke weed every day in order to get to have to pass a drug test. So you just imagine these guys used to smoking weed every day. You're coming down off of substance abuse. Your attitude is going to change. Your demeanor is going to change. You have to deal with these different, you know what I'm saying, rages and outbursts because they're dealing with these medical things that's messing up their body. And they don't know what's going on. They don't know how to control it. They used to, you know, smoking weed every day. And you got a situation where it's like, all right, you're taking me out of my environment and you are trying to help me get my life together and I want to get my life together, but what about my ops? What about my enemies? They're not doing that, so they're still looking for us. They're still out every day hunting us, watching us, waiting for us to, to slack, waiting for us to slip so they can catch us in that wrong moment. So I, even though I'm trying to like shift my mind you know, to a place where I'm trying to do better, I still have to make sure that I'm like watching my back. Yeah, I want to do something good and I want to get out of this life, but my enemy's not thinking the same thing. They're like, oh no, I'm going to get you back for what you did, right? Like they're not thinking, they try to get their life together. They're like, no, I want to get you back. And so you got to deal with all those different dynamics, man, when you walk in life with these young men. Literally, it was some guys, like they did so much stuff. They had too many enemies coming left and right that we literally had to like, we had to like move them to a different state. Literally, two particular guys, like, literally, we had the funds, like, we literally had to uproot them, get him up, move him to a whole other state, because if he had stayed in Chicago, he was going to lose his life. Be, he had so many like enemies. <laughs> like, it was literally, like, witness protection. Moved him, like, moved him and his girlfriend and his, and his daughter to a whole other state to start his life over. Like, we had to do that for two different guys. One we sent to Indiana, another one we sent to Arkansas. And so a lot of the guys would have wanted that type of life to be able to get up out of the community and move and just start over fresh. We just didn't have the resources like that to do. Uh, but some of them moved out of the community, moved to a different part of the city, uh, but literally had to like get out of that environment. And so anyway, man, Edwin was one of the guys that I had the opportunity to walk closely with, even though I was a, uh, the program director, I wasn't necessarily a mentor at this time. He was one particular young man who I took a liking to. He was from the South Side like me. He wasn't from the West Side where most of these guys were from. Uh, so a lot of guys thought that I showed him favoritism because they were like, oh, y'all from the South Side, y'all gonna stick together. Like, what's up? But the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, I, I, I seen him, I seen a lot of myself in him and I, and I had a lot of hope for him. Just I had a lot of hope for these other guys as well. It, it didn't change, but a lot of the mentors actually couldn't work with him, man. And so I, you know, took on that role of, of taking him underneath my wings and walking life on life with him. Yo. That was so good, man. And there's, I mean, you said so much just now, probably as I, as I go back and, and listen to this, I'm like, dang, man, I should have asked him this or like ask him about X, hey, man, We can, we can do a follow-up. We can do a follow-up. Definitely, definitely. I'm glad that you said it. 
Because <laughs> I'm definitely going to hit you up again. But so Firehouse Community Arts Center, you all do great, great work. And I hope that they're still progressing and uh, able to expand their program to be able to serve more people and to be able to provide more services. But my, my concern is, so like I'm, so I'm a social worker, right? And you have direct social, direct practice social workers who could have been like maybe somebody working with, with you all providing those um, psychological services um, and psychiatric services and, and whatever therapeutic services people need. So there's direct practice social workers who provide stuff like that, who work one-on-one or at least closely with individuals and families. But then you also have what a lot of people refer to as macro social work. We work with communities and organizations and systems to try and not just work with the family, but to change the context that a groups of families or whole communities are living in to, deter, to, to, to mitigate or really to eliminate the oppressive circumstances that people are living in. And my concern is when people hear about organizations like yours or organizations like Firehouse, they'll say, oh man, well, we just need more organizations like this. And then they'll just solve all the problems. But my thing is like, it's great that Firehouse exists, but I think the purpose of well, the purpose of this podcast and, and spe- specifically this episode, and I think and definitely of that documentary, is not just so that people can just start their own organizations, but that people can be can under understand the foundational root causes that you identified at the beginning of this conversation of the racism that led to the ghettos. Because like when I'm when I'm hearing about this, I'm like yeah, I'm like yeah, you know another firehouse like firehouse two up in a, in a different location would definitely help and do a lot of good work. But I, I just can't help but think it was like, you know what, this whole situation and the whole narrative around violence in Chicago could have been avoided and never happened. If when people came, they were just allowed to live where they could afford and we're not forced to live not just in um, racially stratified communities, but socioeconomically stratified communities, because there's an effect that being around, well, like when, basically when you're around lack and scarcity all the time, like if you're poor and you're always struggling and then your next, your next door neighbor, they're always struggling. And then the person who lives upstairs from you, they're always struggling. And then the person who lives on the first floor, every single floor, every, every person around you, because like you said, these, these projects, they're huge. They're, they're, they're like sky. They have like a, basically make a skyline. And there's thousands of people, thousands of poor people living in, living in these areas. And I think a, a misconception that I used to have is just that, oh, you know, poor people, they just live together because, I mean, they just can't afford the same type of stuff, the same type of uh, living arrangements, and that's usually in the same space. But then I learned that there are, while there are definitely, there are many communities that have, and many states that have um, high concentrations of poor people of color, while there are definitely a lot of white people in poverty and actually there there's more white people in poverty than people of color yes um, i was gonna say that it's, yeah, yeah that, that's just a misconception man so it's, it's a false mis it's a, it's just it's a false narrative that 
um, black people are the ones who are leading the race on who needs uh, support from the federal government. It's actually white people. Yeah, who, yeah, the raw, yeah, the raw, like the, so. The percentages of black people, of people of color living in poverty, are higher percentage-wise. But when you look at the raw numbers, it's about forty million. I mean, not forty million, but basically, the, I don't want to say anything wrong. But the the, the raw number of white people living in poverty is higher than all other all other groups. But what you but what is what another key thing though is that while there are a bunch of communities of highly concentrated people of color who are also in poverty, there are no communities of highly concentrated white of 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 white of I'm trying to say this in the I'm trying to put my adjectives in the right order. I'm just gonna say it. Of highly there's there's no highly concentrated white impoverished communities. All right, and that's going by that that's going by the um the federal the the federal parameters of uh of of poverty based off your family size and so i do there's definitely uh people who are there's definitely white people who are struggling there's definitely groups of like entire communities of white people who are struggling like i'm thinking specifically like of people who live in uh out west in north carolina and the appalachian mountains like those like they are not uh, live in large by no means, but according to federal guidelines, they do not meet the, for whatever reason, they don't meet the uh, regulations of poverty or the, they don't meet that, that distinction. And so what that means is that although white people do experience poverty, there are people in poverty, they are less likely to be surrounded by poverty. Like you might be like one of the only poor people in your middle-class neighborhood, or it might be a mix of middle-class people and poor, and poor kids. And so what that means is, although like your family will still struggle, what that means is like when your friends go on a trip, they can take you. Or if they get invited to a summer camp, they can, you can get, you can get exposed to different things just by, by way of that having that, that, that social network, that social capital, Mm -hmm. which is huge. And there's just this, this, there's so many, there's so many layers because I just, I just hear like, uh, so many people just like blame black people for black people's problems. Mm-hmm. And I believe that, well, I hope it's because of ignorance because they don't know things like what you shared in terms of the back, the background of how mm-hmm. the projects in, in Chicago got started and in Chicago, like you said, started not, not just the Chicago wasn't just the start of the progress, the projects in Chicago. Like they were like the blueprint for everywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't like an organic thing. It was like, oh, you know, this is just where people live. Like, no, nah, like the, it was, it was, it was systemic. It was engineered yeah, it was where they are and how they are. Yeah. One thing I want to, I want to, I guess maybe one of the last things I want to ask you about, because one thing that, that kind of eats me up and I can't really, I don't, sometimes I don't really feel like I can speak to it as much because I did not grow up. I didn't grow up wealthy, but I didn't grow up in an area f- that was particularly high in crime. I think now it is because I grew up when I was a kid in Fayetteville, but I wasn't like, I wasn't, I left when I was seven. So I wasn't really aware of what was going on around me. However, you grew up in South Side of Chicago. A lot of times I hear people say when black people are upset or when we're protesting uh, police violence, police brutality, they're talking about, well, you know, how come black people don't care? Like all these, all these black people killing black people hunting black people, kind of like what you described, like, why aren't they upset about that? How come they're not upset about that? And of course I have, I know what I what I think to that, but like, what, what do you say, or what do you, what would you say if someone came at you with that argument saying that like, how come black people don't care when 
black people are are gunned down or victimized criminally victimized by by other black people yeah that's actually one of the hot button topics that's prevalent right now and and it has been for a while i mean because even the whole um you know quote-unquote black on black crime uh is not something that came originated from black people but it was it, you know it's originated from white people put that on us you know and so that in itself is not even uh, something that we should take on it's just crime that's happening and so we should be we should have the same amount of vigor and 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 anger and angst against any type of crime that's happening against you know saying anybody right and so uh, if you see it happening, you know, saying with somebody who's black or brown, you should have that same type of passion as well. What, what, for me, what it is is that there are a number of people who do, who who are outraged with it and say, you know, say let's stop it, let's call it out, and let's see it. And matter of fact, probably about a month ago, we seen a situation happen in Chicago uh, in Cabrini Green. Actually, uh, was left in Cabrini Green because there's only like one strip that's left. They actually make it. They actually made it a uh, historical site, so they can't. They can't ever, at least right now, because of the historical significance of it, tear down Cabrini Green fully. Most of it is all torn down, but there's just one little strip of raw homes that are left. So anyway, and it's a historical site. There's a number of people that still live there. And so anyway, just recently, probably about a month ago, there's a situation where Cabrini Green was uh, into it with another housing project that's literally right across the street. It's crazy, right? And was, was the street name is Cedric. And so uh, you have one housing project is right over there that was built, you know, saying it was part of Cabrini Green, but it's, you know, saying it's not. And then you have, you know, saying that one. So anyway, just recently I had a situation where a guy from this one community came over to Cabrini Green. There's been years and years and years of this violence going on. Even the new generation now really don't know where it originated from. They just know that that's their ops and they're going to attack them. So one guy came over from this community and he shot up, he walked up to, uh, a group of uh, people that was in Cabrini Green, and he shot into the crowd, and he ended up killing, killed, ended up killing a nine-year-old boy. He got shot multiple times, and then he ran away. He was on foot. So the community came out, and one of the things that was lacking before is that the police was saying, hey, help us help you. If you see something, say something, right? Turn these people in. Like, you know little John John, and you know little uh little man and you know all these people who are doing this violent stuff you see them around stop allowing them to be in your community they they are not productive at all they bring the community down get them out of here right help us well this particular time they decided to do it so they identified the person that came to the police when the police came in and asked what was going on they identified the person who did it they, they showed them where he lived and all that stuff like that and literally within like 24 hours they found the young man and they arrested him and they took him to jail. Now, granted, the reason why they did that is because this guy was their op <laughs> and so he, and they wanted to get him. You know, they were like, well, we're gonna let the police get him even though some other people was looking for him too. But they were like, we're gonna let the police get him so that he can go to jail for what he did. That's what the police were bagging to have more of. Uh, it's this whole code, that, uh, code of silence that the community takes on where I'm not gonna be a snitch, right? I don't wanna be a snitch. And uh, the truth of the matter is that that takes on such a negative connotation and people don't really understand what that means now. However, when you have a situation where you're living in a over-policed community, you have a distrust for police because they're over-policing you. Whenever they come in and ask for help, you're not gonna help somebody who you don't trust. 
like you're gonna stay away from them as much as possible. One is because you don't trust them, but then also two, if somebody in the community see you talking to them, they are now you become an enemy as well. So now they're gonna do stuff to you because the police is gonna leave, right? They're gonna use you, get the information they want from you, and they're gonna leave out of the community. Well, what's gonna happen when you go back home, right? So people didn't even want the police to come on their doorsteps. Like, not even answer the door. Don't walk in, I think. And so what you had is you, you what, what's been created is this situation because of the over-policing where there's distrust with the police. And so people in the community say, no, we don't talk to the police. We don't talk to 12, right? We don't have conversations with them because we don't trust them. And if you do, then you 12 too, right? And that's how we're going to look at you and we're going to treat you that way. You're no longer covered by us in this community. We're going to treat you this way. And so they stopped beginning to work with the police in, in situations like that. And so when crime is happening in black communities people like they try to uh, become vigilantes and they try to take it take care of it on their own without having to ask for the police help because they because the the trust has been torn down from years and years and years and years and years of over policing so they want to trust them and so it's not just as simple and easy as why aren't you outraged when a black person kills a black person right there's no like quick short answer to that there is outrage there should be more there are people who are outraged and then they're saying different things but it's on a community community basis uh, a lot of the times when you see the police of uh, brutality that's like everybody now is coming together right it's not just this community but it's like all the community all the black community is coming together because the entire black community has been over policed so now the entire black community has one enemy one op and that's the police and that's when you see situations like you saw in chicago and you see in seattle and and, and minnesota and so forth and so on everywhere because it's like no they're coming it's like no this is like i'm looking at my other black brother now and like no we're in this together against them it's not now we're gonna put our petty beef aside now let's go get them so that's when you see these huge outbreaks and you see these huge, uh, like you said, like the riots and things of that nature, because there's a, a, a group of people who are just tired of being over-policed and this is their way of responding. You have those people who are rebelling that way, but then you also have opportunists who are coming in and that's when they bring in the looting and things like that. And that's just ignorant and that's kind of diluting the message that we're trying to uh, put out in those uh, peaceful uh, marches and peaceful protests. All right. Well, I think one of the key things that you said was just that there is outrage and there is hurt and people are upset by it, but there's a number of circumstances that, that keep them from, from displaying it. And also, I think a lot of times it's like, I think it's also the faults, like the media is also involved because like what whereas people Whenever there's crime committed by a person of color, I feel like the media is really quick to portray that. But when it's in a community of color, I don't feel like they just show, if when there is like a community reaction, like I've seen, like I've heard about vigils being in different communities, but I've never seen, I've, I've only seen a few on, on, the, on, on TV. And it's usually like when, when well, the ones that I've seen anyway, it's, it's, it was like when it was like a majority of white people like grieving the loss of white children who were gunned down like at, at school. And that is definitely a tragedy. But I think like there, there's not a lot of news coverage when communities of color get together and they try to, you know, like have they try to organize like take back the night or take back the community rallies themselves. And I think that goes to show that we do care. And you either think that that people of color don't care because you're ignoring that or you just don't know. 
Mm-hmm. And so it, it's, it's, just, it's just untrue to say that people don't care when, when people of color are criminalized by other people of color. And also one, one thing that I think is key, because I was talking to somebody and they were mentioning, they were like, man, yeah, man, we have to be, we have to be just as upset because I, he was at a funeral and he couldn't just, because like somebody that he knew, like his father was, uh, was gunned down by another black person. And he, and, he was, and he was saying in that moment, he felt sad for, for both families. And he was like, because this kid lost their father, but then also the kids of the perpetrator lost their father because, because he, was, he was in jail for like 15 and 20 years. And I was like, that right there, though, was the difference. Like when people of color commit violence and they're caught and the authorities find out about it, they are tried and sentenced according to what they have done. But when police come in and do whatever they want to do and, and, and authorities find out about it, when basically like the nation finds out about it, often nothing happens. And, I, and, and to me, that is the key that's the key distinction. It was like, yes, we're upset, but when people find, but like you said, there's different, there's different things at play that sometimes keep us from taking action. And then also it's just like, well, when people, when the, when authorities are able to find out and find the person, action is taken. Whereas when police come in, action is not taken. They get to take a vacation. They get paid on, right. on, on administrative leave and the police then get to investigate themselves to see if there's a problem. It's like asking the gang to investigate the gang and like, hey, yo, y'all, uh, we hear about y'all doing some stuff. Can y'all please do a report, uh, do an investigation and report back to us and tell us what y'all find out about yourselves. Like, yeah. it, it, there's no other, I don't know of any other arrangement like that. Right. Um, but yeah, <laughs> we could talk about this forever and we will definitely talk about some of this again and I would love to have you on the show again. I really, really appreciate your time, bro. But as usual, I'm going to close out um, in prayer, lifting up this community, Edwin specifically and all everybody else, um, but then also, you know, the nation as well. But we can just bow our heads right now to, to lift up this situation in our nation. Okay. Lord God, thank you for, thank you for my brother, Keith. Uh, I thank you for the work that he has done. I thank you Lord God, for the reality of common grace, because with, without it, our nation and definitely the entire world will be worse off than it is. I thank you for inspiring people like the founders of Firehouse Community Arts Center to, to do the work that they do. Lord God, I pray that you would raise up workmen to bring about justice and, and healing an advancement to these communities, like the one, um, like the one in the documentary, or the ones in the documentary, and all over the country, Lord God, bring the healing and the restoration that that is necessary, Lord God. Not just in the communities, but first start in the people's hearts, Lord God. Starting in, but not confined to the people's hearts, Lord God. I pray that there'll be heart transformation, that there'll be community transformation, Lord God. Not just so that people can live happy lives, but so before Your glory and for Your for Your righteousness and justice to to be revealed and to, made, to be made manifest uh, throughout, throughout this nation, Lord God. And I pray, Lord, that uh, people who are ignorant about the realities, um, lots of social realities, but particularly those uh, stemming from and related to racism, Lord God, will come, into, will come into that knowledge, Father God, and be able to rightly uh, use that knowledge and to, to apply that to their application of their Christian faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Father, we thank you for being a God who is not caught by surprise by any of these things, that um, you are sovereign, you are in control, that you see 
the plight of those who are uh, downtrodden and those who are oppressed. Uh, and you specifically say in your word that uh, we ought to care for the oppressed, those who justice is not uh, giving to, Lord God. Care, care for those, Lord God, who are downtrodden and those who are left out and those who are the forgotten. And so passion that we have for the work that we're doing, we know that it comes from you. This is not something that is new. This is not something that is uh, a separate thing. This is not something that is an afterthought that you have. Uh, but this is so much uh, a part of your heartbeat, so much a part of uh, who you are, uh, caring for those like those who uh, are the forgotten, Lord God, in, in various ways. And, and this is just one of the ways that we're able to do it. Uh, by going out and walking life with young men and young women who are the forgotten, those who are the voiceless, Lord God, becoming their voice and giving them a sense of hope and love and, and life to know that they have a life that is important and they have a life and a, and a plan and a purpose uh, for their life, Lord God, given by you, Father. And that's all that you care to, uh, to be known to them, Lord God. You want to become known to them, Father. And so this is ways that we can do it, uh, that we can connect them with you. We can be your hand and your feet, walking with them daily, uh, pouring and being an example of your love to them. So, God, we thank you for these opportunities. We thank you for conversations like this uh, that is happening. Thank you for Juan and for his heart to continue this conversation, to continue to, to push forward the connection, Lord God, between the gospel, Lord God, and social justice. They go hand in hand. It's not one without the other. But this is all a part of the gospel. It's, it's just the gospel. It's not even uh, one and the other, one plus this, Lord God. But it is the gospel, caring for those who are downtrodden, left out and, and behind, and wanting to bring hope to the hopeless. Father, this is what you came here for, and this is what you're all about. And so we thank you for that, Lord God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, bro. I appreciate your time. I'll be looking forward to the next time I'm able to, to, get, you, to get you on the show, bro. Yeah, man. Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. Uh, Enjoy it, man. Good conversation. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Saved and Woke podcast. Until next time, y'all know what to do. Keep the faith and stay woke.